Hi, good morning, and thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me, Sam. This is a great pleasure to be here. Um, I'm just going to dive right in, but bef uh, before I start, I just uh, wanted to say Sam has actually been very uh, important in my kind of evolution because a few years ago, about three, four years ago, uh, as I was starting to think about these ideas of weight loss and obesity and so on, I read on the internet this young guy who has decided to do his, uh, this, this experiment on himself where he would you know, eat the 5,000 calories. I'm like, this guy's like crazy, right? This guy's really like, dope. So it's like, okay, and so he had two really different diets of 5,000 calories, and so he, every day he would measure himself. And what was really fascinating was that it really crystallized for me the, 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 the failure of this sort of, oh, it's all about calories, calories in, calories out model. Uh, that has really been the uh, kind of uh, failing of uh, all of us, and that's why we have this obesity epidemic, and that's really what we're still fighting against, and thank you to Sam for that as well. <laughs> so I'm Dr. Jason Fung. I'm a nephrologist, and just um, I did give one talk for AstraZeneca at a request of a friend, but otherwise I don't take any consulting fees or anything from pharmaceuticals. Um, further disclosure, I have two books. One is about obesity and one is about fasting. And that's uh, what I'm going to talk to you about today, which is a sort of a new uh, idea. Uh, it's not a new idea, but it's one that has fallen out of vogue and how we can use it really to help our, ourselves and help ourselves stay well. So some of you may know this show, The Biggest Loser. It's a very popular show all across the world, really. And what it does is it pits contestants against each other. And they're obese and they try to lose the most weight. Whoever loses the most weight at the end of the show is the winner. And what's very interesting is that they do very well. But uh, Suzanne Mendonca on season two said NBC never does a reunion. Why? Because we're all fat again. And that's the truth of it. And anybody who's been on a diet uh, knows this. So what's interesting is that you can look at what the sort of diet and exercise regimen they use. And what they advise is for you to reduce the amount of calories that you take in. So they were eating somewhere around a 1,200, 1,400 kilocalorie diet, and they exercised a lot. So that's what you see on the TV show. They spent eight hours, 10 hours exercising. So this is really the classic sort of advice that we as doctors had given people. So reduce your portions, eat a little bit less, move a little bit more, except this was kind of on steroids for TV. And this is the reason why it gets ranked very well. So even uh, so the US News, for example, they will rank diets. And they gave this kind of the number three overall weight loss diet, 11, num number 11 overall. So behind uh, only a few diets, out of like 30-something diets. So uh, really supported by the establishment. But where's the evidence that this really works? And that's what's really lacking. So it's not like we don't have evidence for the calorie-reduced diet. We do. So if you look at the Today study, for example, you see on the green line it's metformin. So everybody got metformin. This was a study in diabetics. And they either got rosiglitazone, metformin alone, which is the middle line, and metformin plus lifestyle. So this is a sort of eat less, move more. So here's a randomized controlled trial of a lifestyle intervention, the eat less, move more approach, uh, compared to, say, metformin alone. So at the beginning of the uh, if you look at the green line, for example, I don't know if I have a, do I have a pointer here? Yeah, so if you look at the green line, you start off at uh, time zero with a body mass index of 34. 
And so after all this time, you see 60 months, so five years, your body mass index is 34. So that was worth it, right? Five years of exercise and weight loss and your body mass index is identical. And the really tragic sort of part is that it's only identical because you had this real push at the end to drop it. Otherwise, you would have been uh, kind of uh, heavier than you were. And that's, uh, that's, that's what the randomized control trials tell us, right? We, we, we profess that we live in an era of evidence-based medicine. And here's the evidence. So this is the diabetes prevention uh, trial. So again, this is the lifestyle intervention. So again, at the beginning of uh, time, you start with zero kilograms. Initially, you do lose weight. And again, if you're ever dieted, which is probably like 95% of us, this is what happens. In the first six months, you do very well. So six, seven kilos off. But then at the end of it, there's no difference at the end of five years whether you did anything or you did nothing. So again, we say that this sort of intervention works. We profess that it does work. But the randomized control trial says it doesn't work. And really, the biggest trial uh, of nutrition that's ever been done was the Women's Health Initiative, which was published in 2006. So this is not new data. This is data that's more than 10 years old. And we all know what happens here. Uh, if you start at baseline, 1,788 calories, at, they, they reduce 360 calories per day. That's pretty good. And they increased their exercise. So if you look at uh, metabolic equivalents per week, they went from 10 to 11.4. So you increase your exercise by roughly 10%, 11%, something like that. So terrific. So you decrease your calories by 360 per day, and you increase your exercise. So the calorie counters, they expected somewhere around 30 pounds of weight loss per year, because they're saying, oh yeah, you should lose a pound per one or two weeks. What actually happened, of course, is this. At the end of nine years, so for year one, you did very well. But the eat less, move more, at the, by the end of the trial, by eight, seven, eight years, there's not even a single pound of difference between the two, right? And this is a randomized control trial. So here's three randomized control trials of the eat less, move more approach, and it really hasn't worked at all. So this is the, this is the translation. So we've proven again and again and again through trial data evidence that it doesn't work, and our clinical experience really says the same. If you look at the UK general practice database, so over 10 years, 2004 to 2014, this is what your results are. So if you're obese, your probability of achieving a normal weight is 0.6%. If you're morbidly obese, it's 0.1%. So in other words, you have about a 99.4% failure rate, okay? This 80% with 10% weight loss will regain within one year. So therefore, um, what, what we see is that it's, it's almost guaranteed to fail. But at the same time that we know that it's guaranteed to fail, what we tell people is eat less, move more, right? None of these approaches has any proven merit. This is from one of the sort of Bibles of diabetes, Jocelyn's Weight Loss, the Handbook of Obesity, and the, uh, all of them say the same thing. Dietary therapy is the cornerstone. Reduction of energy intake is the basis of successful weight loss reduction. But we know that the results are known to be poor and not long-lasting. So how can that be the basis 
of your advice if you know it doesn't work? Like, are you not just setting people up to fail? So that's, that's the problem. Experts say that it's guaranteed to fail, so our best advice is to do that, right? I mean, holy. Like, this is the best the, the geniuses at the NHS can come up with. <laughs> so there's two problems with this sort of eat less, move more approach. And they're fairly well known, but one is a slowing metabolism. Okay, so if you eat less calories, your me metabolism slows down. Again, not really new data. This comes from 1917. So this is 100 years ago that they knew this. They took people and they were eating about 2,500 to 3,000 calories. They cut it by about 30%. So they put them on these semi-starvation diets around 1,400 to 2,000 calories. So not that low compared to what a lot of people recommend these days. Um, and what they found was that the, the, the people found themselves almost impossible to keep warm. What the reason is, is that their metabolic rate, so this is the energy that you expend to keep your body sort of running. So this is to keep your heart pumping, to keep your lungs moving, to keep your liver working, uh, to keep your brain going. It decreased by about 30%. So if you reduce your calories in by about 30%, your body responds with a decrease in caloric expenditure by about 30%. So that's why you feel so cold, because you're not generating the body heat, because it takes energy to generate body heat. And then afterwards, you, you immediately eat and then regain that weight. So that was 100 years ago that they showed this. In the Ansel Keys' Biology of Human Starvation, they showed the exact same thing. So despite the title, it was not actually a starvation study. In fact, what it was was a calorie-reduced diet, which is about 1,500 calories, which again, a little bit shocking these days to realize that this is the level that most people recommend. So if you talk to people who uh, you know, advise weight loss, you should cut your calories to about 1,500. Um, and again, it was about a 40% reduction in caloric intake, and it was almost immediately matched by a 40% reduction in metabolic rate. And here they measured uh, very detailed uh, measurements of physiology. What they found was the heart volume shrank by 20%, the heart rate slowed, the body temperature dropped. So again, the heart needs energy. So it, you, you get less energy, so therefore you reduce your heart rate, you reduce, reduce your stroke volume, body temperature drops, and so on. And again, if you move into the modern era, we have the exact same data showing that there's a, uh, a very close matching of caloric intake and caloric expenditure. So this is a very nice study by Rudy Leibel, uh, 1995. So again, not new data, 20 years old. And what he did was he took volunteers and he manipulated their weight. He used a sort of a shake thing so he could control their diet very precisely. And he made them gain weight 10% and then he moved them to a normal weight and then he made them lose weight. And then he measured their energy expenditure at each of those points. So at initial weight, as they gain weight, what happens to their calorie expenditure? Well, it actually goes up. So you're burning almost 500 calories per day more than you did before. So your body doesn't simply keep storing it. It actually is trying to burn off all of those calories that you put on. As you move back to your initial weight, you see it goes back to normal. And as you lose weight, your caloric expenditure drops. It drops by about 300 calories, 400 calories per day. So again, all the studies show the same thing. So as you overfeed people, their calorie expenditure goes up. As you underfeed people, their caloric expenditure goes down. 
So what happened in The Biggest Loser? Well, here's the data. So what was interesting is in one of the seasons, they actually got uh, permission to study their met metabolism. And this is what happened to them. So over the, uh, the time period of the show, you can see that they lost a lot of weight. So if you look at their weight loss, it's almost uh, 60 kilos at, the, at week 30. So really, really impressive. And it's not all muscle loss. You see that the majority of it is fat loss. So wow, that's terrific. They dropped from an average of 329 to 202 pounds, and body fat percentage went from 49% to 28%. So really, really fantastic uh, results. Well, what happened to their metabolism? Well, here's what happened. Their metabolic rate goes down in every single case. So you see, for example, this poor guy who starts off burning 35, 3600 calories a day. At the end of it, he is burning about 17, 1600 calories a day. He dropped 2000 calories per day of energy expenditure. That's a huge hurdle if you're going to try and maintain that weight loss. It's almost impossible because is he eating less? Oh, hell yeah, he's eating less. But it doesn't matter because if you're, even if you're eating 2,000 calories, so assuming that he's at 35, 3,600, he's eating 3,600 and staying stable. Even if he eats 2,000 calories, this poor guy is going to gain a heck of a lot of uh, body fat. And that's because of his slowing metabolism. So people assume that you can make up for it with exercise, right? That's what the show says. You can make up for it with exercise. You can't. So even at the end of week 30, which is the end of the show where they're doing amazing, you can see that their basal metabolic rate, which is divided between kind of, this is the basal metabolic rate, this is the exercise sort of portion. So this is the kind of uh, resting metabolic rate, this is the non-resting, so the kind of exercise portion. So as they're losing weight, it's already going down, but they're making up for it with like eight hours a day of exercise. And you can't stop it. They haven't been able to stop it. That exercise is not increasing your metabolic rate. Why would it? Like just because you exercise doesn't mean you're going to give more, uh, uh, you're not, you're not going to put more blood into your liver. You're not going to increase your body temperature. So this is the problem, the decreasing metabolic rate. And we all hope that this, may, uh, this um, metabolic rate goes back up towards normal. But it never does. Over a year, if you lose weight, you can see that the total energy expenditure goes down and it stays down, even over a year. And this is what happened to the biggest loser. So this was the article in the New York Times where they looked at people as their weight goes down. That's great. It comes down very nicely, but they all regain the weight. And it's because the metabolism goes way down and then it just keeps going down. So at the end of it, they're burning 800 calories per day fewer, except for this guy, Rudy Pauls, who had gained a lot of weight, then he got bariatric surgery, and then he lost it. What was interesting to me is that nobody really remarked on the fact that, look at his metabolic rate. It goes back up. That's really, really interesting, because this is the guy that you want to know what he did, which is the bariatric surgery. So the problem is, this, this problem is the uh, metabolic rate. And this is the reason that the calories out, calories uh, calorie in, calories out model is completely incorrect because it all assumes that there's a single compartment for energy. So that's not the way the body works. It's not like all your calories, which is really just sort of uh, food energy, goes into a single compartment and everything comes out of that compartment. 
The issue is that there's actually two ways. If you have energy in, so imagine yourself uh, as a power plant, right? Your body's like a power plant that's producing energy, and you're putting in energy. You can either store it as fat, or you can put energy in, say, as coal, and you can burn it off. Well, there's really two ways that this energy in goes. So it's not simply energy out, right? So everything, the calories in, calories out model kind of just assumes everything goes this way. But really, it can either go as energy out or as fat stores. So what we hope happens is that as you reduce your energy in, you'll reduce your fat stores. But again, that is only true if your calories out or energy out stays constant. Okay, so the calories in, calories out model assumes that your basal metabolic rate stays constant. So that's what we've known for the last hundred years does not happen. And that's why it doesn't work, because what really happens is that as you reduce your energy in, your energy out goes down, and your fat stores are completely unaffected. So as you uh, make that adaptation to lower energy intake, your fat stores stay the same. The key problem is not the, this, the energy in. The key problem is this, where the energy goes. It's an energy distribution problem. Because if you eat a lot, you could simply burn it all off and you won't gain fat. So the problem is not the amount you eat in. The amount is this. What controls this? So everybody kind of assumes that, hey, if you put in less energy, what will happen is that you'll get less energy and you'll get some of this from this and goes into that. And again, that's really what doesn't happen. And it's like, why can't you do that, right? So if you eat 2,000 calories and you're burning 2,000, why can't you cut it down and you'll get a little bit from fat and so on? And it's, the reason is this, it's this switch here. Because your body really runs uh, according to what energy is coming in. And there's kind of two tracks. You can burn food or you can burn fat, which is stored food energy. But the key is that you have to switch between them. And you can't do both at the same time. And the main switch is insulin. So in the fed state where you have a lot of insulin, what happens is that you really switch to this track. So if you have 2,000 calories of food, you burn it. But you don't get any from your stored food, right? In technical terms, what we say is that if you have a lot of insulin, you're going to uh, turn off the storage. You're going to turn on storage of uh, food energy, but you're going to turn off uh, lipolysis. You're going to turn off gluconeogenesis, that kind of thing. So when you're burning food, you're not going to take any from here. Why would you, right? When you eat, insulin goes up tells you you need to store food energy. You're not going to take food. You're not going to burn food energy at the same time. The body's just not that stupid. In the fasted state, when insulin falls, so assuming you go to sleep, then your insulin falls. Well, there's no food coming in, so you detach that, and you switch over to this. And now you're burning the stored food energy. So that's the glycogen. So low insulin turns on gluconeogenesis, glycogenolysis, and, and, and lipolysis. And that's been known for a long time. But what happens is that you, don't, you can't take it from both. And that's what you assume that you do when you simply reduce your calories. You assume you can take a bit from here and a bit from here, but you can't. You have to be in one or the other state. You're either burning food, you're burning fat, or you're storing it. But you're not doing both at the same time. And that's why you have this problem with the decreased metabolism, because 
as you, if you keep your insulin levels high, if you have insulin resistance, for example, or if you're eating all the time, like six meals a day, then what happens is that as you reduce your uh, calories, your insulin's still high, so that switch still stays up here. Therefore, if you only have 1,500 coming in, you only have 1,500 coming out. So you feel cold, you feel tired, and you feel hungry. And that's exactly what happens to all of us. The second major problem with this kind of caloric reduction as primary sort of strategy is hunger. And again, we know for sure this happens. What this study shows from the New England Journal of Medicine is that this was published in 2011. And what they did was they took people and they made them lose weight. And they made them maintain it over a year. And so you see that as you lose weight, they measured something called ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone and peptide YY, which is a satiety hormone. So if you look at ghrelin, what you see is that after a year of weight loss, maintaining it off, your ghrelin levels are, this is baseline, this is weight loss, right? Week 62, week 10. Your weight, your ghrelin is much higher. Basically, you're a lot hungrier. Peptide YY shows the same thing. It's much lower. So therefore, you're not as full, because it's a satiety uh, index. So you, what you see is over this time, which you hope always, you always hope it goes away, but it never does. That hunger never really goes away when you, when you lose weight this way. At the end of 52 weeks, so even after a year, you're hungrier than you were before. And that's almost an impossible hurdle to overcome. Because again, it's one of our most basic sort of human instincts, right? It's sort of the, one of the big three Fs, which is the, the, you know, our, our basic needs, right? Food, fluids, and procreation. So this is the whole problem, is that our body actually sets a certain weight, and it wants to maintain that weight. And if you try to lose weight, this is what we know happens. You reduce your energy expenditure, and you increase your hunger. The bottom line is you're going to gain that weight back. And we know this because 99.9% .9 of people fail. And yet, when we fail, we blame them. We say, oh, you just have no willpower. But it's not some hocus pocus. They are hungrier than you were. They are hungrier than they were before. They can't control that. You can't. You can decide not to eat, but you can't decide to be less hungry. You can't decide to burn more energy. And yet we pretend that it's all up to them. It's not. It's all physiology here. So that's the problem. That's why people can't lose weight. And it's the most unfair thing we ever do to people is that we know going in that they're all going to fail. And when they do fail, we blame them for it. Because the vicious cycle of undereating is that as you lose weight with this sort of caloric reduction, you have decreased energy expenditure, increased hunger, so you regain that weight. So then you kind of redouble your efforts and eat even less calories. But the problem is, then you get, you lose a bit more weight, you get a bit more hungry, you decrease your metabolic rate some more, and it just keeps going round and round and round. It's impossible to win. So exercise has always been kind of sort of an equal, right? diet and exercise. And it's not like we're not doing exercise. If you look at the leisure time activity, you can see that as we've become more obese, we've exercised more, there's actually a very tight correlation between exercise and obesity. So uh, it goes up, right? Um, and it's not that exercise causes obesity. I think people who, as they get obese, start to exercise more. But what it means is that we're clearly not having the effect that we wanted to. 
And again, we all assume that it's going to be effective, but if you look at the randomized controlled trials, it really doesn't show that at all. If you look at this cohort study from the women's health study, so again, they divided people at the beginning of the, the study and the end of the study, and what you can see is that those people who exercise more uh, weighed less at baseline. So if you didn't exercise at all versus kind of an hour a day, six days a week. But again, over almost 10 years, what you see is that their weights stayed roughly the same. So even if these people are doing zero exercise, 10 years later, these people have exercised an hour a day for 10 years, but the difference in weight is identical. So it's just not that effective. It doesn't work the way we think it does. And there's lots of trials to show this. There's this one on uh, aerobics, and they didn't really lose a lot. There's this one where they made people uh, do a marathon, and it didn't really work at all. The, the, the men lost five pounds, but the women lost zero. And you thought, might think, well, but they're healthier. But they actually showed no change in body composition. So they went from zero exercise to running a marathon, and they didn't lose any weight, and they didn't lose any body fat. So that really wasn't worth it either. Um, so this is what all the studies show. And this is a well-known phenomenon in exercise physiology. It's something called compensation. So as you, uh, eat, as you do more exercise, you might increase your caloric intake. And the other thing is that you decrease your exercise outside of that prescribed exercise. And that's the reason why the average weight loss is only 30% of what you predict. What that means is that if you are uh, exercising all day, so if you're a physical laborer, so you're a construction worker, you're lifting concrete all day, when you get home, you're not going to say, hey, you know, I should go for that 10K run. It, it just doesn't seem that appealing. But if you sit in front of a, a computer all day, you get home and go, whoa, that run really sounds like a lot of fun. So you go out and you do your running. But, so that's what happens is that what you do outside of that prescribed exercise it's going to depend a lot what you did during that prescribed period of time. And you see this in kids as well. And this was a study a few years ago, 2009. And what they did was they took children and they measured how many steps they made, uh, they took kind of thing. And they uh, had one group which had no phys ed, uh, physical education during school, and another one which got a little bit more than an hour a day, 9.2 hours uh, per week of uh, prescribed exercise in class. At the end of the week, what they showed was that whether you got the exercise in class or not, the total number of steps was the same. Again, it's the same. The kids who had all that physical activity in school, they got home and they watched TV. The kids who sat in class all day, they got home and they went outside and played. It kind of makes sense. And we know that this happens. And so that's what this is, compensation, right? <laughs> so yeah, I'll go to the gym, but I'll take this, the, the escalator to get there. And it happens to all of us. It's just human nature. And even the amount of calories, if you think about calories, the energy expenditure during exercise is little. So now I'm not assuming you're doing 10 hours a day, sort of like biggest loser sort of stuff. But if you do what most of the older kind of diabetic people that I treat, it's like you might walk for 45 minutes. And that's really great. But if you think about it, your calories intake is 2,000 to 2,500. And that 45-minute walk might give you uh, 102 calories, which is like barely 4% of your uh, daily caloric intake. So if you've ever done a treadmill where they, um, where they you know, go and look at that uh, sort of um, 
calorie expenditure, it's very low. You see that that thing goes up very slowly. So it's really only 4%. So again, if you have a uh, diet which is responsible for 96% of your total energy expenditure and exercise which is only 4%, then you really should be concentrating on the diet. So that's how you get results like this, the eat less, move more, where you get no results at the end of it. But the ultimate proof is really all of us because we've all done it. We've all tried that calorie restriction and do a little bit more exercise and basically we've all failed. So all of this kind of comes together, all the proof, all the randomized trial, all the physiology, but also all the clinical experience says the same thing. This sort of thing doesn't work. So in order for you to lose weight successfully, there's two things. One is the metabolic rate and two is the hunger signaling. In order to lose weight in the long term, you have to be able to control those two. And one of the ways that you can do it is something called intermittent fasting or fasting where you don't eat for a prescribed period of time. So again, if you think about the two compartment problem, what you have is that you have energy in, you have energy out, and you have fat stores. The critical uh, issue is this signaling, this partition, which is all about insulin. Where does the energy go? And if you take out the energy in, really there's only one way for it to go. Basically, you need to get it all from your fat stores, and that's the point. This is what happens during a period of time where you don't eat. So this is Kevin Hall, actually. He, he uh, fasted people for 30 days. And what you see is that this is where the energy comes from. So the carbohydrates initially come up, but then you go down very quickly. So all those carbohydrate stores only last for like a day, a day and a bit. The fat, what you do is you get energy from your fat stores and protein, which initially is up a little, goes down and it kind of stays down. So you're not ramping up your protein burning in order to get energy. You're getting it from fat. That's like exactly what we want to do. So physiologically, it makes a lot of sense. What happens to energy expenditure? Well, everybody says if you don't eat, your metabolism will go down. But that's not what actually happens. If you look at over four days of fasting, the metabolic rate doesn't go down. So this is the weight. So your weight goes down steadily over four days of fasting. But if you look at the resting energy expenditure, it starts at 39.7 and it ends after four days of nothing to eat at 44. Your energy expenditure went up by 10%. And VO2, which is how, how much uh, energy you're doing, how much oxygen you're using, does the same thing. Basal metabolic rate didn't go down, it went up. Even as your insulin and glucose go down, what happens is that you're making up for it with ketones and fatty acids. So the, what you're doing is burning. And norepinephrine, which is a counter-regulatory hormone, so remember you have these uh, hormones that run counter to insulin, they tend to bring glucose up. Norepinephrine, or noradrenaline, goes up. And that's one of the key reasons why you're maintaining your metabolic rate at a higher level, at its stable level. Even after 22 days, so this is alternate daily fasting, one day you eat, one day you don't eat. Again, if you look at the resting metabolic rate, you see that it starts out at 66.75, it ends at 63.29, but there's actually no statistical difference between the two. You increase your fat oxidation and you decrease your carbohydrate oxidation, so that's very good. This is a study uh, that was just published last year on people, again, alternate daily fasting. At the end of 32 weeks, so half a year of alternate daily fasting, here's what happens. You compare calorie restriction 
versus alternate daily fasting. So calorie restriction reduces your calorie uh, expenditure by 76, a P of 0.045, which means that is statistically significant, whereas the alternate daily fasting reduces it by 29, in words, with a p-value of 0.4. Again, no statistical difference in your metabolic rate at the beginning and the end. So that's the huge difference between the two. And this is the, the, the difference between the biggest loser where you're doing caloric restriction and that guy who did bariatric surgery, which is that your basal metabolic rate, in fact, it goes down. So this is biggest loser contestants. It goes down, stays down. A Ruan-Y bypass is the uh, bariatric surgery. Initially goes down a bit, but then it goes back up. And that's the difference between success and failure. You're able to maintain your basal metabolic rate. The other thing is the hunger signaling. You know, you don't want to be hungry. And we can measure those things called ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. And we all assume that if you don't eat for a period of time, that you'll just continue to get more and more hungry, then you're going to stuff your face with donuts. That's not actually what happens. If you measure ghrelin over a 24-hour period of fasting, what you, do, what you see is that at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you do get a spike. So obviously, there is a bit of learning involved. So we've learned to be hungry at these times. But what happens, for example, if you don't eat lunch? Well, your ghrelin just goes back to baseline. Same with dinner. If you don't eat dinner, well, it just goes back to baseline. And that's what you have to understand about hunger, is that it doesn't continue to build. Because if you don't eat lunch, and we've all had that experience, you're so busy, you kind of worked right through lunch, by 3 o'clock you forgot that you, you even skipped your lunch. Why? Because your body was able to provide you that food energy from its stores, from its stored body fat. So if you look at multiple days of fasting, again, what you find is fascinating because everybody assumes that if you do three, four days of fasting, you're going to get more and more hungry. But this is ghrelin, so it does go up. But over time, what you can see is that it's slowly going down. So as you fast longer and longer, your hunger actually goes down. If you look at um, men and women, because some people say, oh, women should never fast, what's fascinating is that this is men. Men have this effect where you see that go down. But women have this huge effect <laughs> where the hunger just goes down and down over time. So is it effective for women? One, yes. And two, it may actually be more effective in women than men. So if you're able to, if you compare the weight loss strategies between, uh, between fasting and caloric restriction, they're actually nothing the same. This one increases hunger and decreases metabolism. So then you look like this person, which is like, don't talk to me, right? But then if you're doing fasting, your <laughs> hunger decreases and your metabolic rate stays stable, then you're like, yeah, love it. The problem with fasting is that there's all these myths that surround it. One of them is that you're going to burn muscle, right? And for that, you can look at the studies again. So this is uh, a study of uh, alternate daily fasting. So once again, you can compare the fat, fat mass, which goes down nicely after 70 days of alternate daily fasting. And here's the fat-free mass, 51.4 kilos at the beginning, 51.9 kilos at the end. So no loss in fat-free mass with alternate daily fasting. That study I told you about last year where they compared calorie restriction to fasting. So here's the trunk fat mass, which is the really important fat that carries around the waist, which is important for metabolic um, you know, for diabetes and so on. So calorie restriction only gives you 0.3% uh, off, and alternate daily fasting gives you 1.8% off of your trunk 
uh, fat mass. In other words, like six times better for that. But here's the lean mass. Calorie restriction goes up by 0.5%. Remember, there's a percentage. So as you lose more fat, your, body, uh, your lean mass percentage goes up. But alternate daily fasting goes up by 2.2%. So if you're talking about preservation of lean mass, uh, fasting is like something like four times better. Um, I'm just going to skip this in the, in the interest of time. Um, but this is the other thing is that everybody says, well, females shouldn't do it. It doesn't work for females or postmenopause females. Well, this is the studies of fasting that came from many years ago from the 60s because they haven't done many lately. And what you can see is that both men and women show really the same rate of weight loss. It averages half a pound of fat mass per day of fasting. So it's for both for men and for women. And you see that there's, uh, and they're doing like 30 days of fasting here. You see that there's no slowdown. It just keeps going, which kind of makes sense because your body still needs energy. So therefore, it must burn fat. So there's a huge number of advantages that you find in fasting that you don't in the other ones. One is that it's a very simple thing to do. People understand it. It's free. So this is the thing about uh, <laughs> pairs, right? So if you're trying to do something like uh, bariatric surgery, and there's studies that show that it does very well, but it's, not, it's, it's impossible to do that on a population-wide scale because the costs are prohibitive. They're very expensive surgeries. Whereas if you simply translate that knowledge to people that, yes, you can fast, yes, you can do this, yes, here's an effective weight loss strategy, that's completely free, it's not just free, you're going to save money because you're not eating, but the government will save money because you're going to be a lot healthier. It's a way to stay healthy rather than a way of treating illness. And that's the really important thing. It's convenient because you're going to be able to, to, to save time. You don't have to shop, you don't have to you know, cook, you don't have to eat. So if you're really busy, then you just skip lunch and just keep working. And then you get an hour back from your day every single day. And that all, that all accumulates. It's flexible in that you can do it sometimes and not do it sometimes. If you go on vacation, you can decide, I am not fasting. I am not doing any of that. I'm going to enjoy myself. That's OK, because you can do it more later. So you can bring it on or take it off as you need. And that's the way people have always done. People have always done feasting when it's prescribed for it and fasting. So there's the holy month of Ramadan, there's Lent, there's uh, all these prescribed periods of fasting that people have always really used. And you can use it to any diet. So whether you don't eat meat or wheat or nuts or you don't have time or you don't have money or you're traveling, it doesn't matter because you can still fast. It just doesn't matter. So the, the one thing that appeals to most uh, doctors is that it really has unlimited power. That if you look back at those studies of 30 days of fasting, I'm not suggesting that anybody do that, but you can keep losing weight. And that's what doctors love. So if you give a drug like metformin, for example, there's a maximum dosage. The reason doctors love insulin is because you can just keep prescribing insulin until you get the effect. It has unlimited power, and fasting has that same unlimited power. You can just keep fasting until you get to your appropriate weight. It's okay. It doesn't really matter. And that's really what we're talking about, is a way for people to get healthy and kind of break free of those chains of illness. Because we're not talking these days uh, about illness from tuberculosis or bubonic plague or whatever. What the modern day plague is really this. It's really obesity. It's all about metabolic syndrome. And the thing is that we have this 
huge crisis ahead of us. We all know about the obesity epidemic, about the type 2 diabetes epidemic, and of course type 2 diabetes where you have um, yeah, amputations and heart attacks and strokes and cancer, uh, dialysis, all that sort of thing. And that's all treatable. That's all curable. That's all preventable by these simple dietary manipulations to reduce insulin. And it's not something that's you know, some pie in the sky. You can do it tomorrow. You can start back on the, on the road to getting healthy tomorrow. Anybody can do it. It's really just a matter of disseminating information. I'm not talking about building huge infrastructure to do bariatric surgery or whatever. It's all there. It's all free. It's all part of our human heritage. And that's it. All we have to do is let it be known. And that's what we're trying to do with the PHC. Because we have to let it be known that the dietary advice that we've been given doesn't work. And we have to do better. Because that's what they owe us. They owe us something that is effective, not something that's 99% failure rate. That's ridiculous. And so we have to be heard, and that's what organizations like the PHC are so important because we have to lift our, our hands and our voices. That's really what we're here for. Thank you.